3: This episode of Writing Excuses has been brought to you by our listeners, patrons, and friends. If you would like to learn how to support this podcast, visit www.patreon.com writingexcuses. Season 18, Episode 39. This is Writing Excuses, Deep Dive, Sergeant in Motion.
4: Fifteen minutes long.
3: Because you're in a hurry,
4: and we're not that smart.
3: I'm Mary
5: Robinette. I'm Dongwon. I'm Aaron, and I'm Howard. And I have begun unironically using the term "magnum opus" to describe *Schlock Mercenary*, because I twenty years, twenty years of my life, twenty books went into this, and today we are deep diving into book twenty. Sergeant in Motion, uh, the title of which comes from a maxim. A sergeant in motion outranks a lieutenant who doesn't know what's going on. And when I wrote that title, I knew that the structure of this book needed to involve splitting up the cast and sending Schlock off on his own and doing something stupid and chaotic and destructive and ultimately heroic. And, uh, until about the time that (laughs) I, until I'd actually started writing strips, I didn't know exactly what those things were going to be. I had just blocked out kind of the positions of the cast members. Um, and as I mentioned in the previous episode, uh, or as I mentioned in, in the episode we recorded previously, we, uh, those both mean the same thing. It's early and I'm tired. Uh, this formula is super simple. You know, you split people up and then you bring them back together and that creates a natural structure for a story. And it can be very satisfying.
3: And I I feel like that formula worked. And you're, you're also doing interesting things. Like one of the problems with the modern era is uh, – in, in the old days, you split people up, and it was fine because they were off on their own. And, and now it's like you split people up, and they have cell phones. And in your world, they have sentient communication and all sorts of things. So I think that you did some interesting things there, um, like to to uh, to cause different ways that the the comms communication was a conflict, like when um, when when Schlock is dealing with a frag suit that talks back to him. <laughs>
5: Yes, uh,
3: and the frag suit that
5: talks back to him was a last-minute addition because I realized that I did not want to resort to thought bubbles Mm -hmm. to find out what Schlock was thinking. I had to have a foil for him, Um, and giving him a foil who was a— in the Schlock mercenary universe, artificial intelligence is a person— and synthetic intelligence is a clever set of algorithms that that almost arise to personhood, and having him treat a synthetic intelligence as if it was an artificial intelligence, and having that uh, having that uh, entity eventually reach artificial intelligence felt really beautiful to me. Mm-hmm. You treat someone mm-hmm. like a person whether or not they, quote, unquote, deserve it, and and ultimately one day they become a person and thank you for it. And that just... I was not expecting to get to put that in, and and
4: there it was. really important things about you deciding to add that character in, which is, one, it's very hard to be funny by yourself. Yeah. Mm. And so that gives Schlock such an opportunity to just bounce off of someone and have punchlines and be goofy and, you know, also talk through what he's thinking in his process. And the other is that Schlock is doing some pretty messed up stuff through a lot of this. He's eating sentient people pretty much constantly through the last book. Yeah. yeah. And so having an anchoring emotional thing that allows a level of sweetness and, and, and morality and all of those things and gives him, you know, he is treating this synthetic intelligence as if it's a person. And so we can see a of Schlock that we wouldn't normally, wouldn't be able to see if he was just chowing down on things for the length of that, you know, Yeah, series. in,
5: in uh, I don't remember the book number. Um, the book where Schlock ends up uh, briefly jailed for a barroom brawl and, uh, and has this big emotional arc about, um, about immortality and how immortality now makes him very worried because uh, if someone dies, then some of the futures that could have been created by them are gone. Uh, even if you bring them back, and uh, one of one of the neighbor kids who reads schlock Mercenary, friend of my kids um, was over talking to my kids and came to me and said, "Why did you have to give Schlock a personality arc mm-hmm. um, because because suddenly you know the the amoral uh, not quite every man but the uh, the, the id of the strip, mm-hmm. um, was now reflecting on who he was and was maybe less willing to devour things uh, with wild abandon. Um, and the answer was, because I know that by the end of the story, I have to have some measure of conflict there. Mm-hmm. He has to be asking himself a question before he devours everything in sight
6: but I do like that he devours you know, what I yeah. mean? <laughs> everything in sight. And I was curious, you know, I think you mentioned it in the previous episode, the idea that like somebody had said to you, like, Schlock eats it. That's sort of how conflict is resolved. And you managed to take something that is both like core to the story you're telling, but also take it at such an epic scale. And I'm curious, like sort of how you got there. Cause it's such a cool way. Oh, to there's
5: a, uh, is a James P Hogan, uh, uh, series, the Giants novels. Um, uh, I can't remember the, the titles of the individual books, but in one of them we do some, uh, some archaeology and we discover that there was a race of creatures uh, living on Mars. And as we do the archaeology and learn more about them, um, we realize that because of a quirk of biology, there were no carnivores, because everything that was made of meat was toxic to eat to everything else that was made of meat. But mm. plants were fine. And and that grew into their morality to where they, creatures never ate other creatures. They only ate plants. And I remembered thinking about that and thinking about Schlock and thinking about the dark matter entities and wondering, what if the dark matter entities never learned to eat each other. <gasps> oh no. Oh no. Schlock has discovered how to obtain energy from his enemies in a way that's absolutely unthinkable to them and that made it both more delightful and more horrific. As I've said before, in one sense Schlock really is the
4: really is a movie monster. Mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. he's a he's Godzilla. a walking horror show. Yeah you made one interesting decision around being able to eat the Dark matter monsters, which is that they don't actually die, though. He doesn't digest them all the way. He takes energy from them, but they're still left at the end of it. What was behind that thought process and sort of why you made that choice? Um, it, it felt to me like an outgrowth of the weird
5: physics I'd arrived at. They had, um, in order to do battle with baryonic matter... Baryonic matter, us, non-baryonic matter, things made of dark matter. Mm -hmm. Um, In order to do battle with baryonic matter, they needed a way to recover from being destabilized. And I'd come up with this whole physics of metastable dark matter and stable dark matter, and very proud of it, not going to dive into the details of that right now. Um, But they had a way where when they were destabilized, There was a copy of them made so that, you know, they were stored as data so that they could be regenerated so the soldiers could go back to fight. And I thought, you know, when Schlock is eating them, that will probably set off that mechanism and they will have a memory of being eaten. And, oh, that's even worse. Oh, I love that so much. Oh, not only are you dead, you remember dying and what it felt
3: like. Mm -hmm. and. That was very delightful for me. <laughs> it's funny how many things are, are for a storyteller are driven by, oh, this is horrible.
4: Yeah. Oh, this will make you feel bad. Yeah. Well, and uh, I, I can't remember when
5: I learned that lesson, but it was, it was fairly early on that I, I discovered that sometimes when you, you think of the worst thing that could possibly happen, and as an author, that is your cue for... That is either the dark night of the soul, or but that has to go in the book because your readers are going to think of that, and they're not going to want it to happen. Mm-hmm. And that that's a tool in the toolbox. Mm-hmm. There are so many more tools in the toolbox that I I want to talk about. But we're going to take a break first.
4: Hey, writers, are you thinking about learning a new language? I think exploring the world, experiencing other cultures, and being able to communicate with people outside your everyday experience lets you create richer Learn at home or on the go with a desktop and mobile app that let you download and access lessons even when you're offline. And it's an amazing value. A lifetime membership gives you access to all 25 languages, including Spanish, French, Italian, German, Japanese, and, of course, Korean. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, Writing Excuses listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off visit Rosettastone.comslash today. That's fifty percent off unlimited access to twenty five language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your fifty percent off
0: at Rosettastone.com today. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient.
1: Have you ever felt like you
6: were living the same day over and over again and everyone around you is getting murdered? If you want to feel like that, you should play The Sexy Brutale, which is a really lovely game that came out a few years ago for PlayStation, Windows, Xbox One. In it, you are trapped in a manor house and everyone around you is dying. Everyone is being murdered and you get to go through and stop each person from being murdered one at a time. And it is an amazing game of looping and learning. And each time you go through the game, you learn something new about the characters and eventually about who you are and why you are stuck in this place. It is one of my favorite short games to play. So definitely check out The Sexy Brutale.
5: Welcome back. I promised more tools in the toolbox. A big one for me was (laughs) uh, PBS Space Time Podcast. I, I watched this—I I listened to this podcast or watched it was a YouTube show. Watched this YouTube show, and it, there was an episode on ways in which the universe could end, and one of them talked about uh, whether matter was stable or metastable. And it was this idea that during the Big Bang, things stabilized, but maybe we were, like, trapped in a little valley halfway down a cliff, and sufficient energy— might push matter into a new stable state and that state would propagate at light speed across the universe, destroying everything and and that would be the end of it all, which is very scary and very depressing. And then I started thinking about dark matter and realized, you know, dark matter can't, the, the way we understand it with real physics, it doesn't interact with matter and it doesn't really interact with itself. It falls... It, it, you know, there's gravitational attraction, but when two dark matter particles fall towards each other, they don't collide and interact. They just fall through. Because if they fall, fell and interacted, there'd be an energy release that we'd observe. And so I thought, well, dark matter doesn't work the way I want it to work. What if metastable dark matter has all of these interesting particles, but something about the terraport is what... and that. That thought cascaded from stuff I'd been writing 10 years ago, terraports and terraport area denial, damages dark matter. Oh, it pushes it out of the metastable state into the stable state. It turns dark matter that's interesting into dark matter that's just foggy. And yes, that came to me, I think, halfway through book 17 or 18 I realized, oh, finally, I understand how my universe works. I can write this conclusion. And so toolbox, going back to the well all the time and filling my head with physics.
6: Thinking about some of the things that you're talking about that you know that are beyond what we, you know, end up seeing And I'm thinking about, sometimes we think, we talk about world building as like, it's an iceberg and there's like the part above the surface and the part below. I'm thinking as you end a project, it's like your last chance to like chip pieces off the iceberg and like get them to float to the surface so that your readers, uh, you know, will see then. I'm curious how you decided sort of what to end up putting on the page and what will just sort of remain a fun fact, you know, that you could tell us, but won't actually be in the actual comic. Um. Well, they, see, that bit,
5: I knew I I knew I needed it, but I couldn't figure out how to make it funny. And then I tried naming the particles, coming I, up with I names of the so particles. Much. I that scene, yeah. yeah. That, that was, was so much fun. And, and I realized, um, oh, Umbral. Umbral's a great word. Umbral and Umbreon. Wait, Umbreon's a Pokemon. Oh, there's <laughs> the joke. Yeah. There's the joke. And then making a character moment out of it where two characters are arguing... About how stupid it is to call them darkons or whatever and uh and and suddenly it's a character driven discussion that ends with an intellectual property fourth wall breaking joke about we you know they are umbryons, not Umbryons, because because there's a pokemon yeah. um and interestingly, the idea of breaking the fourth wall that is. As my humor matured, I did that less because that that increasingly that felt like a cheat. But breaking the fourth wall is something that appears in early Schlock Mercenary and I knew I had to include it in the last book mm-hmm. as yeah. a as sort of a meta callback. Yes, this is the same story you started reading. See, I still make jokes <laughs> about companies that
4: are bigger than me did you have a list of callbacks you wanted to hit or was it just sort of like ad hoc you're like oh here's an opportunity for a pokemon joke that's the thing i used to do that's fun (laughs) or was it like ooh, i want to make sure this is the last volume i want to hit certain things
5: at some point in i in the prep for book 18 i realized that i didn't have a list Mm. and i probably wasn't going to make a list but i should do some reading Nice. And Mm -hmm. so, I went back, and I just, I read through Mm -hmm. a lot of old Sherlock Mercenary, and there were bits that stuck out to me, and there were bits that I thought, uh, oh, that would be fun to use, and then I literally forgot about them, which, actually, that's kind of a good litmus litmus test. Mm -hmm. You know, if you've forgotten about it between day one and day two, maybe the idea wasn't that good Mm -hmm. after all. Um, But the fourth wall jokes, the fourth wall jokes stuck out. Mm Uh um, I did
4: notice Schlock ends up in a tub.
5: Yeah. Oh, yeah, the Oval Quick. I had yeah. to I I had to bring I had to bring Oval Quick back. Um and that you know we talked about we talked about retroactive foreshadowing. Uh I say retroactive foreshadowing. For me that means oh this thing that I already did, now I can turn it into foreshadowing despite the fact that that wasn't my original right. plan. Um, There was a lot of that. There was a lot of that in the last book.
3: Um, I I have a a question that I feel like is probably a little personal for me, but um, did you include the Jane Austen quote for me? Because I felt very (laughs) spoken to in that moment. Um, Just say yes. Just say yes.
6: Oh,
4: no.
3: (laughs) There was—
6: I'm so glad you
3: noticed.
5: (laughs) I, I kind of I kind of had to because I realized that I had done a, uh, uh, I had done a nod to Robert Jordan like at the beginning of book four, mm. and I knew that I needed to, to make a literary as a callback. I needed to make a literary reference, and yes, the Jane because I am friends with Mary Robinette. Uh, Jane Austen was where I went first because that felt
3: the silliest for Schlock Mercenary. (laughs) Well, and and also when you're dealing with an intergalactic conflict, you know, a truth universally acknowledged, it's like, well, that's actually, that's not a hypothetical in this particular...
4: (laughs) (laughs) We're making statements about the universe (laughs) at this point. Yeah. Um, Going back to the toolkit, you know, one thing I also wanted to emphasize here is this is a visual medium, right? This Mm -hmm. This is not just writing, it's comics, and so you were bringing in such big, heavy world building this last volume. Mm-hmm. You're bringing in theoretical physics that I had never heard of, and I'm pretty up-to-date on a bunch of stuff. But, like, there was, like, really cool, interesting aspects here. And then you decided—then you re- then you had to figure out, how do I render this visually? I can't remember if they're introduced in volume 19 or volume 20, but the first time we see the actual creatures inside the skeletons yeah. of these world ships— and it was just such a cool visual design because we first see the ship and it just looks like a like a it looks like a dog toy frankly almost yeah. you know like this ball with a holes ball. in it and then when we realize that those holes are for their tentacles i don't know it's just something about that visual reveal was so good and satisfying you know how do you think about those kind of reveals alongside these big technical science reveals <laughs> or character reveals
5: yeah. Oh, sorry. I'm giggling because I remember that moment uh, very clearly. There was a... Uh, I, I can't remember the, the scientific instrument that they used, but they were making gravitational maps
0: mm-hmm. of
5: galaxies and looking at how the, the fog of dark matter was shaped actually differently than the whorl the of stars. And... The whirl of stars through a telescope is very crisp. That's, I mean, we. it is such a golden age right now for yeah. mm-hmm. beautiful, crisp, glorious pictures of galaxies. And I'm looking at that fuzz, and I th- I, I, wanted better pictures. I wanted more resolution um, and drawing dark matter. I had done it in, I think, book 13. I had drawn a dark matter tentacle mm-hmm. uh smashing through something with the understanding that when concentrated, stable, dark matter smashes through something, it's only interacting with it via gravity. Um, You know, several... several Gs of gravity pulling on things in weird ways, which is very destructive because it can reach through both sides of it. And, Mm -hmm. you know, we don't build things for those kinds of stresses. Um, And... And yeah, there was this image in my head of I'm going to draw something where we can't see the gravity, and then I'm going to draw something where we can, and the picture's going to be really crisp. Um, And I did have to talk to Travis about it and say uh, the one thing that we can't ever do with the dark matter pictures is not knock back the line work. The line work can't be black. The line work always has to be colored, which makes a whole lot more work for him because he couldn't just... You know flood fill and then paint within mm-hmm. the filled areas mm-hmm. he actually had to select the line work and put colors on that as well and Travis is your colorist Travis was the colorist yeah. since uh oh gee, since two
3: thousand nine two thousand ten so yeah um, I'm going to ask a variation of a question that I get asked a lot, which is about um about how many drafts and iterations, but specifically what I'm wondering about since we're talking about wrapping everything up, how many drafts or iterations? Did you have to do for that very last strip?
5: Very last strip. That's the that's the one where Schlock is has stolen food from the dinosaur and is running away from it. <laughs> um that was that was all one go because uh because it was an epilogue and I I wanted how do I sorry, I'm art, I'm articulating this badly. That picture was for me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And mm. I knew that I just wanted to draw Schlock running away from a giant fluffy Tyrannosaurus Rex. And that th- the sergeant is in motion and he has <laughs> stolen someone else's food, but the dinosaur needs to be smiling, and Schlock needs to be smiling, and Tagon needs to have. Kids, you know, Murtaugh is pregnant, mm-hmm. and and all of those elements—they were just there to bring me joy. Mm-hmm. If other
4: people like them, well, it was such awesome. a Bill Watterson image, right? Yeah. It was such a Calvin and Hobbes, you know. Of Schlock has always been sort of this blend of Calvin and Hobbes at the same time, <laughs> you know. But you know, getting to have the T Rex in that sort of Hobbes role, you know, it just gave it such dynamism and activity. And you love drawing dinosaurs so much. Oh my I, Every time you put a dinosaur on the screen, I can just feel the sheer joy coming through. Yeah. That you,
5: yeah. There's, you know, there's a
4: scene where what's her face is writing the, riding dinosaur, the dinosaur. I was thinking it's the of that. best thing. Yeah. It's just so much fun. Yeah. Sorley is
5: Sorley, uh, that's H- right. Haley Sorley. Um, who, what a great character. Yeah, uh, yeah. Her her story is a funny one. When I first introduced that character in book fifteen, Delegates and Delegation. Um, the outline had her dying mm. Mm. i knew that this was a character that we were going to like and she was going to do heroic things and then she was going to die heroically and about 3 quarters of the way through the book i realized no no this is and, and there 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 was a there were some meta reasonings in there meta number 1 was i've introduced a female character Who is probably one of the most compelling female characters I've created, and killing her off would be a bad move. And two, she's way too useful to the story. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Way too useful to the story. Um and uh turning her through the course of the story into someone who has, and this is this is subtext rather than she has a familial, non-sexual relationship with Landon and Tenzi. You know, they cuddle, they are friends, but they're completely different species and completely different organic. You know, there is this, there is this weird threesome there that I didn't overtly come out and say, yes, this is an asexual triple marriage, but but in my head i always drew them so they could be that way hmm. mm. and uh and I, I i love her she represents so many different things for me mm-hmm. uh of course i had to let her ride a dinosaur of course <laughs> yes. i had to
3: let her ride a dinosaur how mm-hmm. could i not um i uh yeah yeah i love the moment when when they're like you know, this is an actual meat space, and she's like, that makes it even better. <laughs> I guess like,
5: it does. Yeah, that was, uh, the the whole bit about them, uh, the whole bit about them, you know, traveling all the way to some distant, uh, distant um, matrushka brain, I think is how mm-hmm. it's pronounced, mm-hmm. um, coming up with, that solution for Fermi's paradox mm-hmm. that the great filter is mature species realize it is too dangerous to hang around where life might spawn because it'll spawn and it'll be dangerous. So we're leaving. Mm-hmm. All of the grown-ups keep leaving. Mm. There's a point where Petey in an earlier book has you know aspire or has, has uh apotheosis And his moment of apotheosis, he looks around, It's like, where are all the Mm -hmm. grown-ups? I loved coming up with that as a solution, and the fact that some of the grown-ups are Earth's dinosaurs was just extra fun for me. So, um, I could talk about the end of Schlock Mercenary for hours and hours and hours. I love this thing so much, and it was difficult to end it, uh, for a lot of reasons, and I think we'll talk about some of those in our next episode, um, <laughs> business reasons. Um, but uh, very unapologetically, um, I refer to it as a magnum opus because I spent so much time on it, and it's, a, it's been a huge part of me for 20-plus years now.
4: Who's got homework for us? I have our homework this week, and, you know, I think— in, in theme with our topic today, what I want you to do is to go and write a one-page outline, keep it relatively brief, uh, make some bullet points about how you want to end your current work in progress. Really just think through what are the things that are going to provide the narrative resolution, what kind of callbacks do you want to have in there, and what emotional beats do you want to leave your readers on.
3: This has been Writing Excuses. You're out of excuses, now go write.
5: To stay up to date with new releases, upcoming in-person events like our annual writing retreats and Patreon live streams, follow Writing Excuses on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter, or subscribe to our newsletter.
3: Writing Excuses has been brought to you by our listeners, patrons, and friends. For this episode, your hosts were Mary Robinette Kowal, Dong Wan Song, Aaron Roberts, and Howard Taylor. This episode was engineered by Marshall Carr Jr., Mastered by Alex Jackson and produced by Emma Reynolds. For more information, visit writingexcuses.com.
1: You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable.